Welcome to Asking for a Friend with me, your host, Katrina Buffard. I'm a clinical sexologist, psychotherapist, and sexuality researcher. And this podcast covers any and every topic relating to sex, intimacy, or relationships that you might feel a little too embarrassed to ask about. This season of Asking for a Friend is sponsored by Desire, South Africa's leading sexual health and wellness store. For a lovely little discount, stay tuned until the end of this episode. On today's episode, I'm speaking to Professor Trudy Smith, who is one of the most highly regarded physicians in the field of obstetrics and gynecology, both locally and internationally. Professor Smith and I discuss several aspects of a particular stage in a woman's life when she hits the menopause and what one can do when you're in the menopause and also why Japanese women are known to have almost no menopausal symptoms. Of course, we're also going to discuss how your sex life is affected and how this is not the end of your sex life, but perhaps a completely new beginning. I'm so happy to be talking to you, Trudy. I think there's so, so much that people can gain from hearing your expertise on this vast topic. And despite there being so much information out there on Google and from peers and from, you know, healthcare providers, I still think that there's a lot of gray area when it comes to the, you know, the menopause. I think more importantly about the menopause is because everybody's um, process and symptoms and feelings are different. And for that reason, there's so much variety in how you feel or don't feel during that transition into the menopause, that that variety of websites, places, things that you read are out there. So it becomes so confusing. What do I do? You know, because everybody's different. Absolutely. Every single woman is unique in the way that she's going to experience symptoms of the menopause and go through it, the age that she's going to go through it. So I really think that if if you and I can delve into today a little bit about, you know, the, the, the generalized view of what you might experience and kind of roughly what age women do enter menopause, that would be a really good place for us to perhaps start. So, I mean, most women um, go into, so there's a phase, there's the perimenopause, and then you transition through to the menopause. The, men, the word menopause just really means your very last menstrual period. That's all it means. And that generally for most women is around about 50, between 49 and 51. But if it happens before 45, that's considered premature ovarian failure or premature menopause. But some women can go on to have their periods until they're 55. Um, And it really is uh, quite interesting that there's often a genetic component. So, you know, if your mom had an early menopause, you may well go into early menopause. And I think that's quite important, particularly now that women are having their children later and later. So, you know, if you've got a family history of premature ovarian failure or premature menopause, and you're only starting your family at 40, but your ovaries um, are starting to fail at 45, it doesn't leave you much time. So I think those are questions that you need to also ask your mom. That's something. Uh, that- in terms of going through the transition. 
Uh, that's something that I actually didn't know. And now I'm going to go and ask my mother tomorrow when I do see her at a distance, um, because that's quite fascinating. I, you know, I work a lot with clients at this stage of life and it's, it's, it's something that, that a lot of women struggle with. And, and as we, we briefly mentioned, some women may have some variation of symptoms. Some women have, may have all symptoms. Some women may have very easy time and symptoms. So what exactly could a woman experience when she, when she reaches the menopause? So um, prior to her last menstrual period, her periods can start to become irregular. So they might be more frequent or you might miss a month or two. And in that transition time, what happens is that you get this wild fluctuation in hormone levels. So you might have a, a period and then a few weeks later start flushing. Um, and a flush really is a sensation of heat that um, starts in the chest and goes up into the face. Um, but it, it can vary for different women. And generally, they start at night, but not always. Sometimes they can be during the day. What's quite interesting is hot flushes can disturb your sleep. And um, the more hot flushes you have, in fact, there's a high association with depressive disorders. So also another interesting thing is um, women who get postnatal depression often manifest with depression as they transition into the menopause because it's the same process. When you are, are post-delivery, your estrogen drops, your progesterone drops, and you become depressed. And the same happens um, in the menopause. So if you've got that history of postnatal depression, just be wary that from a depression or a mood manifestation that might occur at this time. So really the main symptom generally is flushing. But there are many others. For instance, sleep disturbance is common. Often wake up at about three, four in the morning, can't get back to sleep. Um, and, and you could be woken up by your hot flushes. So um, that's an interesting thing as well. And, and the less sleep you have, the more depressed you get. So that becomes a vicious cycle. You can start getting creaky joints. Like you feel like you need 2.20 in the morning to get out of bed, you know, a little bit of oil. And then by the end of the day, you feel fine again. So joint pain can be there. Um, sometimes a feeling of anxiety. We, you know that I don't know what's going on. I feel anxious. Um, mood swings are quite common. Tibido can drop um, at this time as well. And um, many other things like a dry vagina, the joint pain. But a lot of women also get like a brain fog. They feel as if they've got like that dull headache or a little bit of cotton wool brain. They're not quite sharp, not remembering everything like they used to. So you see how the symptoms really vary. Funny enough, some women even tingling of their hands and feet um, at this time from a hormonal um, perspective. So a lot of varied symptoms. But what is important is not to always just blame hormones. So you need to really look at the whole picture. Um, generally, as you transition, it might be as you put all those symptoms together related to your menopause, but don't blame everything on hormones. That's a, a very, very interesting and I think pertinent point because I think that as women and actually men too, because I have been on the receiving end of this, are very quick to blame hormones for fluctuations in moods, you know, difficulty sleeping, 
you know, hot flushes, whatever it might be, vaginal dryness, when what we actually know is that the number one reason women experience discomfort and pain during sex is because they're not aroused enough, sufficiently aroused. So that means there's vaginal dryness. So the interesting thing there is, I really like that you made that point, because there's other things that could be investigated as well, rather than just uh, the stage you are at in your life. But while you were speaking about it, I actually was thinking to myself, gosh, this sounds a lot like pregnancy. A lot of these experiences sound like pregnancy. And obviously that's because of hormones. But wow, what a, what a, you know, full circle we go as women, you know, if we're going to bear children from the experiences that we have when we're pregnant right through to the experiences we have when we're going through the menopause and then coming out of it again, kind of like, it's like a Benjamin Button effect where we go forward and then we go backwards. So I think what is, um, you, you're so right, we sort of go in the circle. I mean, we start as adolescents, how our anatomy looks different um, as we transition from adolescence to reproductive. Our labia majora are much bigger in adolescence, but uh, in our reproductive time, it's the menorah. And then when we reach menopause as we age, you know, that transitions back to that sort of juvenile look again. So, yes, you know, your whole anatomy changes. I mean, also the distribution of fat, which is also another interesting thing that happens. Everybody, the middle age spread is a very real thing. You redistribute your fat into that midriff area, and it's due to the effect of hormones on metabolism. So that's why it's particularly important in your period, in your adolescent years, to do uh, weight-bearing exercise because that's when you get maximum bone. And then, as you transition into your menopause, you start losing bone. So that's why you should be doing weight-bearing exercise. And we know that exercise also helps from a, a metabolism perspective and from the distribution of weight um, at that time. You can be a skinny malingi. Most of my patients. They're like skinny weight gym bunnies and that menopause drives them mad because they get a little bit more on the on the upper abdominal midriff area. Yeah, so, yeah, is, that transition is very real. And and that's one thing that that women and you know in society societally, the way the body image is portrayed is is having that flatter stomach, that leaner body, you know. So that must be very challenging for women when they're reaching that age. I am also thinking about something you, you started off by saying, which was, you know, women can go into menopause right from 45, right up to 55. And I'm thinking of Janet Jackson having a baby in her 50s. And that's because she hasn't yet gone into the menopause. Is that correct? Yeah, well, it depends because, I mean, she may well have had assisted reproductive um, help, in, in which case she might have had like a donor egg with um, hormonal support in order to have a baby. But yes, that transition as well is also everybody thinks they're not going to fall pregnant, you know, after the age of 45 and often women stop their contraceptives. But in fact, while your fertility does decline, it is still a, a time that you can fall pregnant. So yes, you do need to make sure that you're contraceptively covered over that time, in that transition time. So it is, it is you're vulnerable to pregnancy. Same like breastfeeding. You're vulnerable to pregnancy just because breastfeeding doesn't mean you're not going to fall pregnant. So how do women, how do women best manage um, the menopause? What, what would be your advice and how do you kind of um, treat women that come to see you with difficulty with hot flushes or insomnia or vaginal dryness? 
So I think the very first um, thing, like everything, is lifestyle modification. So you need to assess, are you exercising enough? What about your diet? So we know that alcohol, particularly wine, gives an increase in flushing. So, and particularly red wine, funnily enough, you flush a lot. It's so disappointing. Spicy food, yellow cheeses, funnily enough, also increases flushing. So you need some lifestyle modification. They also, you know, you also find people take this myriad of supplements. I'm not too sure why. I'm not a big supplement person. It's about eating healthily. It's about exercising at this time. It's about changing the way you dress. For instance, cotton clothing, lots of layers. Um, the same with your bed sheets, you know, light cotton bed sheets. Um, those kind of things also help. And then to assess how bad is each symptom. So we talk about um, hormone replacement. And I say to women, you cannot replace hormones. Those hormones, you know, a lot of women want blood tests, but they're gone. They're, it's a natural, normal process of life that your hormones drop at this time. It depends on how symptomatic you are, whether you need hormone treatment. I think that's what we have to say. It's a treatment. If you don't take um, any hormones, it's not going to affect your life. Like, for instance, if you don't take your diabetic medication, uh, you're going to have serious consequences. So it's all really about how bad those symptoms are for you and how you want to address them. So we know vaginal dryness. So you can use lubricants, but I must say for me, lubricants often leave like a, a residue. Um, it starts getting a bit messy at the time. It, it sometimes isn't that spontaneous. So, you know, vaginal estrogen, vaginal estrogen is safe. It is available over the counter. You don't even need a prescription for it. Um, and that can improve your vaginal dryness significantly. And, and is that safe for somebody to use if they've had breast cancer? Because somebody who's had breast cancer is obviously very, should, should not be using estrogen or hormone replacement therapy. So we know, and our oncologists allow us to use vaginal, um, vaginal estrogen in breast cancer survivors, particularly those on tamoxifen. There's a little bit of, um, we're a little more wary on those who are on other aromatase inhibitors, but we certainly know in terms of tamoxifen, if you put vaginal estrogen in um, twice a week, say a Monday and a Thursday, for instance, um, if you use a vaginal estrogen pill, the amount of estrogen that you get for a whole year is less than one pill because it's 10 micrograms. And um, what they've done in studies is they measured the blood level of estrogen before insertion and after, and it doesn't go up at all. So it doesn't get absorbed into the general circulation. It works just in the vagina. So yes, you can use it. That's really you should. agreed. You should use it. I, I, I've worked a lot with women who have survived breast cancer. And for me, breast cancer does not signal, signal the end of your sex life. It just means there's a shifting and a changing in the way you perhaps have been having sex. And the 
the so perhaps extras that you need to add on, such as a good quality, say, silicon, unscented lubricant, maybe some vaginal estrogen and so on. Um, maybe if you've got some sexual discomfort and pain using dilators or, or things like that, if there's been vaginal atrophy, which is when the um, the tissues are shrinking. So there's there that does not signal the end. And I, I think that's an important point I do want to get to in a moment, but that menopause doesn't signal the end of, of our sex lives either. But I'm going to come back to that in a second. So you've given such amazing practical um, bits of advice, you know, about clothing. You've spoken about vaginal estrogen. What what do we do to manage hot flushes? How do we do that? So certainly, you know, those women, unfortunately, the only real thing that works for hot flushes is estrogen. Um, there are alternatives um, that you can try, particularly, for instance, in breast cancer survivors, we definitely do, and particularly those who are estrogen receptor positive, we do not want to give them estrogen. So if we're talking alternatives, um, there's a drug called clonidine. It is actually a headache medication um, if you use it three times a day. Um, so we always talk in medicine about um, placebo effect, which means that even if you took a Smartie, it would improve. Or we talk about the percentage of women that take that drug where it would make it better. So we know about 60% of women, their flushes will improve if they take clonidine. So it's not a highly, highly effective, but it's got some efficacy. There's also a drug which is an antidepressant. So um, we need to step back and say, why do we flush? So we flush because of the effect of serotonin and estrogen on the, on the temperature receptors. So there's an antidepressant, which is a selective serotonin and noradrenaline reuptake inhibitor. It's a very long word. But um, basically, I always say to patients, um, sure, you don't think that I'm giving you just an antidepressant for you to get over your hot flushes. It's what they interestingly found is one of the effects of this antidepressant is it inhibits hot flushes. So it has an effect on your mood but it also can decrease hot flushes. And in fact, the lower the dose, the better. Um, so always start low and slow on this drug. So it's called venlafaxine is, and there's various um, venlafaxines out there. But if you start on 37,5 milligrams of it, um, you often find that it sorts out the anxiety of that hot flush and it decreases the hot flush as well. So that's a, a good thing to try if you can't use estrogen. But at the end of the day, unfortunately, estrogen is the best from a flushing perspective. And um, if you have a uterus, you have to have both estrogen and progesterone. And what we now know, particularly um, about the progesterones, is you can get progestogens, which are synthetic progesterones, and then you get uh, progesterone, um, which is similar to what is made in your own body. Um, but it doesn't work well as a transdermal. So progesterone creams are not sufficient enough to protect your uterus if you are taking estrogen. You have to take it orally. And interestingly, progesterone is good for sleep because it works on what's called GABA receptors in your brain. So you take your progesterone at night and then you can get combination pills but in fact, the estrogen as a transdermal through the skin is probably better. Um, so you can get an estrogen gel or you get an estrogen patch 
You can even get estrogen and progesterone combined patches. If you don't have a uterus, you're in the fortunate position of being able to have estrogen only. I had a question from a follower on Instagram about this topic. And the question was, I'm perimenopausal. Can I take the pill? Can I be on the pill? So if you're perimenopausal, and particularly if you need contraception, a low-dose pill, yes. Provided you're not smoking and you don't have any other, you're not obese, hypertensive, diabetic, or smoking, yes, an oral contraceptive pill is sufficient. It will also stop your flushing. And now we know you even get oral contraceptive pills with the natural estrogen called estradiol in them. And those are often better from a flushing perspective in this age group. And so could that woman continue to take it right through menopause or would that be something you'd advise against? Yeah, so, normally we, no, so normally we would keep them on the pill, provided they have no other contraindications, until they're 51. And then I tell patients on your 51st birthday, provided you're not going away, you stop your pill. And then we, me- we can measure your blood in 10 days and measure again six weeks later. And if you're menopausal, then you're fine. Uh, you must use alternative forms of contraception because maybe you're a late menopause and you have to continue that pill now going on to 55. So yes, you can. Fascinating. So then a complete curveball of a question, I suppose. Japanese women, it's been proven Mm. and reported that they experience less menopausal symptoms. Can we discuss (laughs) Because it's diet-related, I understand. So first of all, we have to distinguish between Japanese women who live in traditional Japan compared to Japanese women who have moved, for instance, to the United States. So Japanese women who have adopted a Western lifestyle generally will have the same symptoms as we do. But Japanese women within a Japanese environment, first of all, it is the most amazing place to go and visit. In the world. In the world. If you get on a train and you have a look you will see little groups where there's little spaces all doing tai chi they are always exercising number one they're always outside you will see a 90 year old granny doing tai chi it is they do not have a sedentary lifestyle number one so they are exercising their their diet consists mostly of vegetables and tofu And so tofu has high estrogen levels. So, yes, diet and lifestyle gain, that's what it boils down to. But unfortunately, as a Westerner, generally we're not like that. So, you know, eating your three tofus at night but having your Big Mac for lunch is not going to hack it in terms of your menopause symptoms. But, yes, Japanese women, there's a lot on, on very interesting work on that. A family member of mine wasn't able to take uh, hormone replacement therapy. This was probably 15, 20 years ago. She wasn't able to be on hormone replacement therapy. And so she she had told me at that time, I mean, I was much, much younger. I think I was just starting out studying or in my career. She had told me at that time about it. And I read this book about why Japanese women don't, don't get menopausal symptoms. And you're right. I think it's, I'm so glad you made that point about Japanese women in Japan living the Japanese within the Japanese culture. And it really, really fascinated me. But I mean, even if I can just take it a little bit further and out of this conversation about menopause, 
the Japanese have some of the oldest living human beings in the world because of the culture and the lifestyle that they lead. They have a sense of meaning and purpose. They are active, as you said. The diet is predominantly um, vegetable-based and very nutritious, Very not such processed foods. There's there's a lot to be said. That we, well, there's a lot that can be learned from the Japanese culture, I think. But I obviously want to maybe caveat and say, as a woman, you do have to be careful with the amount of soy you eat. Is that correct? Absolutely. So, you know, um, it's like uh, whenever there, there's a, a common problem, or as women, we will all go through menopause. Whenever there is a very common problem, there are many, many uh, websites and claims and whatever. I mean, if you just Google menopause, there's something like 35 million hits um, that you'll get. get. So, um, yes, I absolutely agree with you. You can't now go and have this mountain of soy um, like I said, but not change everything else in your life, you know. So, yes, it is about mindfulness, meditation, exercise, changing your whole uh, lifestyle, not having this massive plate of soy and thinking that's going to get you through your menopause. Yes. Um, so, I mean, they have their own problems. Yeah, absolutely. And now I suppose it, it segues really nicely into sex because the Japanese are the culture in the world that actually have the least amount of sex which is very interesting. But let's now talk a little bit about sex and menopause. So this, as I mentioned earlier, is something I, I, con- I get consulted on a lot. Menopause does not mean the end of your sex life. It absolutely does no. not. It does not. And in fact, maybe it should, we should start putting the mindset in that it maybe liberates you from a sex uh, perspective because you no longer have that a pregnancy fear and perhaps you know we need to start being I mean certainly me the older I get the more comfortable I am with my body I mean I am who I am and that's what I think are the mindsets that you need to um, get into but there definitely is particularly women by the way who have their ovaries removed it's a big problem for us You shouldn't be taking out ovaries unnecessarily because those women who have a surgical menopause, their libido plummets because the ovary continues to make a little bit of testosterone after. That's why we sprout little chin whiskers and so on when we hit the menopause. Um, So the ovaries are very important. We don't really know everything about them. So if um, they don't have to come out, they should not come out. That is important. And yes, we we should be talking about our sex life. I always tell my patients, I say to them, listen, the less you you use it, the more you're going to lose it. The vagina, particularly from a lubrication perspective. And again, diet, I don't know what you think, but a Mediterranean diet from a nitric oxide perspective and vaginal lubrication is also quite important. Absolutely. It's, 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 it has a, a major effect on what's going on internally, again, lifestyle and diet. But to come back to a point you made, research has shown us that the reason that women are deemed to be in their sexual prime later in their life is because they stop caring so much. 
they stop worrying so much about their body image. They get more comfortable in their skin. And that is actually where they let go sexually and thus are able to enjoy themselves more sexually than they would say in their 20s or even their early 30s when they're hugely body conscious. And I think particularly in the age we now live in with Instagram versus reality, we're being bombarded with what what we think we should look like or what we think a celebrity or an influencer looks like when that's not actually realistic at all. So when it comes to sex, I think the biggest complaint I obviously hear from my clients is the symptoms of menopause getting in the way of, of being sexual, understandably so. I hear a lot around vaginal dryness and we talk about a vaginal estrogen. We talk about a great lubricant, particularly a silicon lubricant. I always suggest that you dry out, which is there a particular brand that you would recommend that I know I've got a particular preference? Um, you know, the, funny enough, uh, if you ask a, if you ask clients, they'll always tell you they use KY jelly and I'm oh. like, oh, that always looks like a residue. Don't, you know, oh. try a silicon base. And I think, and don't be shy about going to have a look at what's um, out there. I mean, I, I, I used to say Astroglide was quite a good one, but you can't find it. So I don't know what's out there available. I always tell them that they need to go and look in the feminine sector and make sure that it is a silicon-based, uh, which is your favorite brand. The, the, the brand Pure, P-J-U-R, it, you can buy a big bottle of it. I think it's a couple hundred rand, which is, you know, it might be like 20 pounds or so, $20. And it lasts so long, both when you use it and over its lifetime. So there's there's lots of different variations of it, but there's one specifically for women. So it's called the Pure Woman Glide, I think. I could have gotten that wrong, but it really is a fantastic lubricant. And it's also unscented. So when I have a woman who's just, you know, recovering from breast cancer, it's a fantastic lubricant because it doesn't have a scent to it, which if you are sensitive to any smells, also for pregnant women, it's a great option. So as as I know about the Astroglide, but for me, Pure, PJUR is really a, it's a really great product. And what's, what's important about not having a scented product is its effect on the pH of the vagina. So what we also know is when you uh, transition through to the menopause, the pH of your vagina changes. So when you are reproductive in your reproductive years, your pH of your vagina is acidic. And as you go into the menopause, because of the low estrogen, is your vagina becomes alkaline. And you can sometimes get this uh, sticky discharge, like a yellowy sticky discharge. And it's not necessarily a pathological discharge, but that's where vaginal estrogen helps and certainly um, you need to shy away from products that are um, highly scented or flavorants in them. Um, for me, those are a problem from a vaginal health perspective when you get older. And the other thing for me is baths. A, a, a bath should be tossed out. Nobody should have a bath. They should all shower. Because a bath, uh, often you use soap, and then soaps are alkaline, and then they change the pH of the vagina put you at risk of bacterial vaginosis and those other infections. Whereas just water on the vagina or a feminine wash, nothing else. I, I'm even against feminine washes. Um, professionally, yeah. I, I, I say to my clients, you don't need soap. The 
The vagina yeah. is a brilliant self-cleaning machine. You don't need to douche. You don't need to use soap. You don't need to scrub. You literally need to have some water in that area. And use soap at the back, fine, but don't take soap into the to the vulval area and to the vagina because you're actually going to cause yourself a problem. Yeah, I, do, I can't understand why because it is a self-cleaning um, self oven that hopefully bakes many things. And um, yes, and the, the water is all you need. What is all you need? That's, I really hope people take what we've just said to heart. We're not saying that for fun. There is a genuine scientific logic and reason behind that. So with sex, using a vaginal, vagin, uh, using a lubricant and, and being generous with it, don't hold back. In my profession, the wetter, the better. Use it or lose it. We both know we yeah. will share that with our patients. Probably a vaginal estrogen. But you know, I'm just thinking about like sex positions. If your if your if your joints are feeling a bit creaky, maybe it's helpful for us to just touch on a few variations, if possible, around sexual positions that are easier on the body, that don't you know aren't as straining on one's joints. If you've got that pain when you first wake up in the morning, yeah, I think um, you need to know what's comfortable for you. Um, certainly. And, and I also think what a lot of women are afraid to talk, speak to your partner, you know, this is uncomfortable for me, I prefer it this way, you know, my knees are sore today, please can I be on top or whatever the, the situation is. So don't shy away from sex just because you have a few creaky joints, you know, we hope that, you know, when you're 80, you're still able to find a position that's comfortable for you. It'll, it'll change. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen a, a, a show in a series with Jane Fonda called uh, Grace and Frankie. but I love it. I absolutely love it. And there was a fat, I mean, I, I don't want to give too much away for those who haven't seen it, but they, Grace and Frankie as these two women in their 70s, late 70s, who, who get divorced from their husbands because their husbands decide they want to be with each other. But these two women decide to start a sex toy company for older women. And there was an absolutely phenomenal scene where their children were questioning and thinking like, this is gross. Why are our mothers starting a a sex toy company? And Grace and Frankie stand there and firmly say, I've got achy joints and arthritis. How do you think I'm supposed to use a vibrator? And women my age shouldn't just stop having sexual pleasure. It's just the most wonderful, wonderful normalizing of sexuality for women and it makes me think that for for menopausal women again the menopause does not mean the end of sex it does not mean the end of sexual pleasure it just is a different chapter that you're going into as a woman and as a couple absolutely and you know if you worried about your little tummy wear a cute little lace teddy over it or you know you it's not the end it should be actually more the beginning i mean also your children are out of the house so the vast majority of them you have the house to yourself you don't have to sneak around waiting for them to go to sleep you know all of those kind of things so i think yeah we need to really try and change the mindset that um you just adapt according to what your body does yes Yes, yes, and yes, some more. 
Um, and I really hope that when when women or their partners are listening to this, it it enables a shift to take place cognitively around the the preconceived ideas we have around this area in our life. And I, I know that you and I could continue to talk about this topic for hours, and there's so much more to say. But if you had somebody come to see you who was struggling with menopause, and you were only able to share one thing with them in order to help them, what would that be? No, that's a hard one, hey? So um, I think for me, the thing to share is communication, communicate. Communicate to your partner, communicate to your health practitioner, communicate to yourself. Because without um, communication, you're unable to change things. So, you know, if you say um, uh, to your partner, it's just too thaw, it's dry, then you'll make a plan. Um, the same as to your practitioner and the same to yourself is that you mustn't be silent. Don't zip it um, because you need to unzip it so that you can use it. One of my dear colleagues in the UK is great line. Communication is lubrication. Yep. That's, Absolutely. That's what we need at this stage of life, right? Trudy, thank you for, for speaking to me today about such an interesting and, and relevant topic that still, despite women having gone through this for the whole of time, we still, we still individually don't know enough about. I've learned a lot today, and I, I know that the people who listen to this podcast and listen to this episode will gain a huge amount of knowledge from hearing your experience and, and your thoughts on it. So thank you. Thank you for having me and have a beautiful day. If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to this podcast and continue learning about some incredible and fascinating topics that we need to know more and talk more about. You can subscribe and follow this podcast on your favorite platform. And if you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you would rate and review it. This episode was sponsored by Desir. Desir believes that sexual health is not just about the latest sex toy, but about using products to improve one's overall sexual health and well-being. For 15% off, use the code FORAFRIEND.